and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Nothing But Trouble. Hello and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my friend Julio. We have some returning friends of ours as well. We are here today to travel back to 1991, to February 15th of 1991 to be exact. So that was a more of a... Uh, this was the, the, the Valentine's Day release, not Christmas. But here to date. discuss the Dan Aykroyd uh, penned and directed "Nothing But Trouble," starring Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, John Candy, and to me more, of course, Chevy Chase. I don't know how the fuck he got top billing in 1991, <laughs> but that, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Uh, brought to us by our returning friends here, Julio, who's uh, who's filling out the studio. Uh, from the other side of the globe with us this evening. So, so Spit and Polish is back. That's, you know, let's get that out of the way first. Spit and Polish is back, Ryan Bartek. And generally, whether it's them guessing on our show or us guessing on theirs, uh, you know that it's got to be a little offbeat, whether it's uh, them testing us uh, with with a movie that they may think that we don't like or that we may not like, or uh, them just trying to share their knowledge uh such as when we did The Pale Face on your show, a movie that didn't know existed until we did there. But anyway, let's... Uh, Julio's a big Lemonade Joe fan. He already knew about that film before walking in to t- discuss that one. To this day, we reference Lemonade Joe every now and then. Because it's a perfect film. Very good. I'm happy. It's a, it's a, it's no nothing but trouble, but it's a perfect film. So tell us a little bit, before we get into nothing but trouble, tell us a little bit about uh, Spit and Polish. Uh, and, and then, well, Ryan, just go ahead and tell us about uh, Yum Yum Pod as well. Well, uh, we're flipping a coin. Which goes first? Yum Yum goes first. Sorry, Bartek. My <laughs> wife, Rachel, and I host a TV podcast where we rewatch and revisit and review episodes of science fiction television. We go over Star Trek Discovery, one of the greatest series ever made. I hope it goes to 10 <laughs> seasons. And we talk about Babylon 5, the... Uh, mid nineties oh, sci-fi series, great space opera epic, lots of moving parts to it. We break those down. We just have a general discussion about how this fares on our rewatch, things that we're picking up this time round, anything, any pieces of trivia or information. Uh, oh, this actor was in Babylon 5. Oh, look, it's Freddy himself. He was in Babylon 5. Isn't that an interesting little detail? That Freddy Krueger himself was in this 90s sci-fi show. How odd. And 
So that's what I do over at Yum Yum Podcast with my wife, Rachel. But Bartek, you and I host a podcast. Yes, that's true. Rachel's husband and I host a podcast <laughs> called Spit and Polish Presents. That is our little umbrella brand. So we used to do a show called Unappreciated Masterpieces. Um, we are on hiatus for a monthly show, uh, almost called Mystery Box. The Mystery Box. Um, but what we've been doing for the past... Uh, it's been about couple years. Couple years, yeah, literally couple. Um, yeah, since 2019, uh, we've been doing pictures powwow. Uh, the original PP, as Ryan calls it. <laughs> yes, the original PP pictures powwow, where we every week we do on a cycle a film that I recommend, a film that Ryan recommends, or a film that is recommended by the listening people. That's everyone except me and him. Yes, so we've had movies recommended by the contrarians in the past. We've had. Some really good ones and one one really, 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 really boring. Boring one. Very bad Thanks, things. We had um, War Machine. War Machine. Uh, that's not the one that I was thinking of. I was thinking of um, How to Succeed a Business Without Really Trying. Oh, yes, yes. One of my favorite episodes of your show. And, of course, part of it is just because I, I just wanted to hear you guys talk about it. And I got my wish. There you go. Wish upon a star. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we do that every week. We review a different film and we give our honest thoughts on them. And it's been really fun. With that in mind, uh, Nothing But Trouble is very much, and I think Alex would agree, very much a spit and polish selection. Yes, we uh, we did it on Unappreciated Masterpiece, the first show that I mentioned. So yeah. you can check that episode out. So if you've heard previous appearances from... Uh, Ryan and Bartek here, or if you're already a listener from their show, then you kind of know what you're in for, uh, and it will be a lot of fun. So if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, let us just give you a quick rundown of what it is we do here for our returning listeners. Hang tight with us. We'll get to uh, nothing but trouble here shortly. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh. And what we'll do in the first half of our show is bring that movie down to size, uh, talk about maybe some of the overrated aspects of it, be it questionable acting, uh, bad storytelling, direction, uh, bad score, some things maybe critics just kind of swept under the rug in an attempt to push their narrative forward. And conversely, like we'll be doing on today's episode, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten, uh, this being 13%, quite rotten. And we'll do, just as you'd imagine, uh, we'll build that movie up, discuss that movie's merit, some of the aspects of it, be it soundtrack, direction, um, you know, surprisingly good acting, things that we feel uh, kind of got a bum rap and not the proper credit they deserved, all in an attempt to prove, number one, uh, this shit is subjective. You can be as positive and over the moon about something as you want to be or as cynical and negative about something as you want to be if you truly set your mind to it and number two just in our never-ending quest as film nerds to kind of call out that that rotten tomato score doesn't always exactly tell the whole story uh, but that all comprises the first half of our show what we call contrarians corner julio if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movies we're discussing they just have to hang around uh, for the second half, part two. That's right, part two, the aptly titled Real Talk. I think that conversation about this movie has been minimal between us, Alex. Uh, we shared a couple of text messages that had more to do with the, the logistics of recording and not so much the movie itself. So I'm pretty excited. I, I honestly, I, I, I mean, I'm always pretty honest when I'm doing this intro, but I really don't know if you like this movie or not. Like with Ryan and Bartek, I have an idea. With you, it could go either way. There's a lot of uh, practical effects. Uh, there's actors that I think you like. Uh, 
it's not cinematographer that you love probably yeah yeah so uh but at the same time i could just see this if this gets on your nerves i don't think that it ever gets better <laughs> so i i am very curious uh and i'm curious about what ryan bartek had to have to say even though like i said i think i have you guys a little more figured out who knows um anyway listeners you and i and Everybody else in this call is going to find out what's going on for real on the second half of the show. But first, since this is a rotten movie, we're going to say really nice things about it, whether we believe it or not. Uh, That's what Contrarian's Corner is all about. All right. So again, Nothing But Trouble, 1991, Dan Aykroyd wrote and directed this. I guess this was like his uh, rosebud. He obviously had a lot of pride going into it. Uh, (laughs) Anyone care to wager how Chevy Chase got top billing in 1991? I can tell you. I know for a fact. Oh, go for it. Chevy Chase was making nothing but successful films right up until this point. You look at his career, and each year he was in bang after bang after bang, hit after hit after hit. And him and Dan Aykroyd obviously had a hit together with the film Spies Like Us. So it was an obvious choice to get Chevy involved. And there's actually a story about how Chevy Chase... Seemed, they all seemed like, oh, Chevy won't want to do this because this is outside of what he usually does. But that's the exact reason why Chevy Chase joined on. He wanted to do something different. He wanted to play something a little outside of his realm of comedy and enter into the horror comedy sphere and just do whatever Dan Aykroyd wanted to lead him to do. So that's how you get Chevy Chase involved here. That sounds like that Chevy Chase guy. He's he's very easy to work with. He just does what you tell him to mm-hmm. <laughs> just yeah, gets along with everybody. Yeah, he's Chevy Chase and you're not, so accept that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Demi Moore was still up and coming when they filmed this, I should say. I mean, yes, we'll talk about her career, I'm imagining, but uh, for her filming-wise, this was still the earlier part of her, so she wouldn't have been that big of a star yeah, this when is, they signed her on. This is before Indecent Proposal, so she mm. was not a, a Hollywood uh, megastar. Yeah, before Charlie's Angels. Yeah. Before uh, Mr. Brooks. Before Ashton Kutcher. So, yeah. Before we were born, Ryan. Yeah. Look, this is not about our personal relationship, Miriam. This is business. Do you understand? It's about my, my professional credentials, my, my law firm's time. Why am I talking to you? All right, Julio. Like we said, 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is not uh, a critical darling. Uh, what were the then, now, forever, the critics saying about this on Rotten Tomatoes? And we're going to start with two, like a, a one-two punch. Michael A. Smith from Nolan's Pop Culture Review says, nothing but crap. And Josh Gilchrist from Billings Outpost, Montana says, nothing but a complete mess. Uh, I am sad to report that those were the only two quotes that used the nothing but format. But uh, Oh, you're I- sad about that. Okay, cool. <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, yeah, real creative, guys. If they're going to disappoint me, I want them to really disappoint me. Just... Yeah. I need 10 of these. Um, <laughs> for something with a little more substance, uh, Candace Russell from the South Florida Sun Sentinel says, a perfectly dreadful film. Uh, I don't think it's dreadful. I think that there are some parts that are kind of uh, scary. So they, inst- you know, give you a sense of dread. But I don't think that that's how she means it. I think she just means she, dreadful. She, she, meant, she meant to review Judge Dredd. She just put it on the wrong one. <laughs> I like I like that P word that she used, though. Which one? Pretty? No, perfectly. Oh, perfectly. perfectly. Sorry. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> that one feels all right yeah, for some that's reason. That's accurate, yeah. yeah. Uh, next, Ralph Novak from People Magazine says, After a few minutes, it's clear that this comedy is not enigmatic, just hopelessly confused. I don't think so. I think that uh, Dan Aykroyd... 
it's you may like it or you may not, but uh, you know the end result. But I think that he had a clear vision. <laughs> this is not yes. a movie that just happened. It's it's a very clear vision into the mind of one it's, man. It's one of the big appeals of the film that there was a very clear vision. <laughs> it's it's ripped from somebody's brain. Let's just say that. Yeah, this is. Uh, I think the critics are confused. Uh, Alex, we're gonna close with Ken Hankey, old friend of the show, even though he probably doesn't old know it. Ken, we love Hankey. <laughs> Mountain Express from Asheville, North Carolina. He says, boy, is it bad. Almost worth seeing to see just how bad. And I will half agree with Ken Hankey here and the part that it's worth seeing. I think that uh, just like with the previous quote, whether you like it or not, when this movie's over, you can at least say, all right, well, I watched it and I probably would never have watched something like it until I was done with this. So I am glad that it's... I can put it on my letterbox as part of my film watching history. Kudos to all four of us for making that that happen. All right. So Nothing But Trouble is the story of Chris Thorne, played by Chevy Chase, who's a financial advisor in nineteen early 1990s New York City. The opening credits vary of the time, the scrolling, the scanning of the skyline of New York City at night while the text for the credits plays over and everyone gets like a credit brian doyle gets credit and he's in the movie for like two minutes so (laughs) (laughs) ending on written and directed by dan Aykroyd. and this movie just right away i it establishes our love interest our couple our you know our one-two punch as we get a meet cute between chevy chase and demi moore which is honestly something I never had thought of or knew happened in the history of American film. <laughs> yeah. What a pairing, huh? Who I mean, that's that's what we call perfect casting right there. And even, you know, Demi Moore, she said to Dan Aykroyd, I think you should film this scene in slow motion when I'm walking in. That was her, because she already knew that the audience would want to see her slowly. And what a what a wise mind that is. I was more uh I guess gratified by watching young Chevy Chase at the top of his game. Uh, he is, I, I don't know how how popular he is over there on the other side of the world, guys, but uh, over here, he's kind of become this caricature of uh, an out-of-touch old white man. And he's I mean, infamous, that's his stick yeah. now. You know, that, that, that's just what he does. Mm. So when you see Chevy Chase in the movie, he's like playing that character. And I mean, he's still funny, but it's almost jarring to see him play kind of like a, a you know, a lead character that seems confident and <laughs> that other people see as attractive, that other people may see as a threat. It's uh, I, I didn't grow up with, with watching Chevy Chase movies. So to me, the only other times I've seen him like this is uh, when uh, I watched Christmas Vacation last, last year. And it was also, uh-huh. it was kind of like the same feeling of like, this is Chevy Chase? I, I get it now. I get how, how he got to the point where, you know, he was on top of the world at some point, in, uh, you know, in, uh, at a point in time. And then... Uh, whether it was bad choices in his filmography or or just uh, lack of desire to keep being a leading man. But now mm-hmm. he's just more of a, you know, I guess it, it's hard for an actor to stay on top all the time. But it was such a pleasure to see him again in his prime in this movie and just knowing that it yeah. was going to be him mm-hmm. leading us along. I'm used to Chevy Chase from this era. And when we talk about modern stuff with Chevy, he was the reason I watched Community because I, I, I grew up with Chevy, whether it's the vacation films, Caddyshack, of course. Um, he has a large body of work that I've enjoyed. I've even enjoyed some of his Saturday Night Live stuff. 
he has that thing where in real life he was just a rich boy who just decided, oh, I'll do comedy, oh, I'll do acting. And he has that attitude about it. And that's kind of the 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 joy that you get from him. Like when you watch Fletch, you you watch a movie where you see a rich actor guy who doesn't give a shit. And that's kind of <laughs> charming. And there are those actors like that currently who we we gravitate towards because you just know that they have a, a an overall disdain for everything, but it's it's endearing as well. And especially from this era of comedians, you had him and Bill Murray and so on and so forth that had that uh, kind of cynical streak to them. And uh, Chevy was the one who would play, well, the family man sometimes with uh, vacation, but most of the time he would play yuppies like in this film. I mean, he, when you see him there, because yeah, if you present day, if you say Chevy Chase and Demi Moore, you're like, what? But when you see it, back when it happened, it, it makes perfect sense. It's two attractive people getting in an elevator and and you can see the sparks fly. Yeah, we get the the meat cute. Demi Moore has her dogs that we unfortunately don't see for the rest of the movie. But uh, I mean, it's all, it's the Chevy Chase show right away. Like the way he's doing his comedy. He takes a drink mm. of scotch thinking it's Coke and, you know, he has the reaction to it. And just his very dry and droll delivery of everything. He is a financial advisor and he has... Uh, like a proposal from somebody that Demi Moore seems to recognize. Ryan Bartek, what what is the relationship here that Demi Moore has to this piece of paper? Because she obviously has a big reaction to it. One of the things I do want to emphasize, because I think this is an underlying thing, whether we're saying it out loud or not, is there is that discrepancy because Chevy's an older, not not the most handsome guy in the world, and Demi's this young thing. But it does establish <laughs> in this that. She and both him and her are bad people. They're business people. She's drawn to him because she can find some opportunities because she's got a she's a lawyer and she's got a deal where she's going to have to help sign over a company to take away the land rights to what was it the Poconos, and that will, mm-hmm. that will be very important later in the movie when it comes to our main villains reasoning for why he hates the rich when it comes to land possession and swindling people. So that's actually something subtly set up like you don't know that because you're starting the movie and you're just going okay what am i in for but the movie is saying to you very quietly these two people are both bad people both people who exploit others for their own means and they're going to exploit each other throughout this film you're just going to have to watch also there's some brazilians Uh, Brazilians that speak Spanish as <laughs> they are all over Brazil. Uh, but like you said, like you said, Ryan, though it it starts off normal, but then we get to see the normal type of interactions that these characters have. They just met, you know. They have a little conversation, elevator, crying. Two seconds later, I need to go somewhere. Can I borrow your car? No, I'll take you. We'll go on a road trip. Yeah, <laughs> that is the unexpected odd couple stuff that I am in this film for and why this film is not rotten. Yeah. But it's even, and I'll go even further, I would say that it's not even just that it establishes some sort of normal environment. Because, yeah, they're being quirky once they start flirting and they have their interactions, but it's still, you know, it feels like this could happen in the real world. Uh, But even beyond that, I think that it also paints them as, it sets you up for a movie. If you are like me and you don't know anything about this, it sets you up for a very different movie than the one we get, you know, 20 minutes later. If you're, you're thinking, okay, so this is going to be about socialites and it's going to be about a somewhat impenetrable legal 
uh, story. Uh, you know, it reminded me a lot of uh, the the beginning of the Phantom Menace when like the diplomats are talking about the mm. the treaties and all that stuff, and you're like, is this a Star Wars movie? Uh, what is going on? And then you just keep going, uh, uh, and eventually, you know, you get all the cool stuff. But yeah, I'll, I'll confess when Alex asked me the question of what her relationship was to the thing, I I blanked out. I freaked out. That's too you much for me. Because I know. was here for the romance. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's uh, Fausto and Ronaldo Square Nizu. I give them investment counseling sometimes. They're Brazilianaires. So the next day, they embark on a trip to Atlantic City because Chevy Chase sees this as an opportunity to, you know, canoodle with Demi Moore to take advantage of, you know, his position in business and this uh, trip he could go on. He's very, very hungover. It's made just for the bit of. He's so hungover, he can barely pick up his keys. But as soon as he sees Demi Moore in that white outfit, you know, bling, washes right away. It's a, a SpongeBob movie where SpongeBob is really hungover. I forget what happens, but there's this animated cell of like him like jolting and the hangover completely leaves his body. It's, it's what it reminded me of. Uh, so Demi, Diane, Diane. lights him. She's like obsessed with driving. She's she wants to drive this car so fucking bad. Like every other word is well, I'll, I'll drive that Beamer. Uh, I mean, he's got a nice car. He starts it up and it's like the fucking Batmobile. But <laughs> they can't escape before the Brazilianaires hop in the car with them and off they go. My note says annoying cliche Brazilian couple because you know in the <laughs> late eighties, early nineties, we have to have the not even well to do, but like the overly attached. Uh, self-unaware, flamboyant foreign couple. Well, Tyler Negron has to play something in this time period. That's what he did. That's what that actor, he always played those roles. And uh, hey, I was happy to see him in this. Oh, man, he's a very big that guy actor. Oh, yeah. When I saw him, hey, that guy. I I also think that their presence, the the, the Brazilians, that is like, they're necessary. So you can get more of a a wider range of reactions and emotions when it comes to uh, the what lies in the future of this movie, right? Because Chevy Chase, for the most part, he is too cool to to overreact to anything, to even like, you know what I mean? Like he takes everything kind of in That's the a shoot, brother. That's him in everyday life. He's too cool for everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He is Chevy Chase, and we're not. And that, that, this movie is yeah. just that it. And then you have uh, Demi Moore, who reacts more like, I think, most people would in in these situations. She she was every time something weird happened and she had a reaction. I'd be like, that would probably be me. And she then was a go getter. The- that was that was her. She was a go getter. Like every weird thing, she would be like, okay, I'm gonna roll with this and see if I can twist this to make it so that it's okay for me. That's her throughout the whole movie. She's like, okay, 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 something weird's happening. Okay, I'll just go with it. Hey, do you want to play cards? I want to play cards. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> On this beginning bit though, when they're in the car, like she's 25% of the passengers, but she's the only one that actually wants to go to the destination. So you know, mm. she's kind of got, you know, the main understandable motivation, whereas our other three characters, they shake it up a little bit for us. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, the Brazilians are just out there in a way i think that they're preparing us for the weirdness that's going to overtake the movie once we get to uh to that accurate town so yes they can be a little too much but at the same time i think that if you remove them from the movie the you would feel the void you would feel their absence you know this because we'll get to it later <laughs> exactly <laughs> What happened to the Spongebobs of this story? They were the funny ones, but then some other funny things happen. So in a way, it kind of balances out, but the presence does get missed. So they head off to Atlantic City. They end up just taking a wrong turn. I mean, it's weird in the sense of they're following these tropes that you see in all your 
cliche horror films, but it's like Chevy Chase and Demi Moore and that guy. So it's like, what, what's going on here? Um, they are led astray. They cut through some town, like some little township. that looks like a movie set. And uh, they run a stop sign. They, Chevy Chase, of course, establishes where the hell are we? Uh, they run a stop sign, attempt to um, evade the police officer that gets on their case or on their uh, tail, rather. You you get some great lore and woe building, though, because when they're driving through the town, it is like this ragged town. There's like coal everywhere. There's pillars spitting out of the ground with smoke. Everyone's day drinking and giving them the mean eyed look. And everyone's like. Okay, let's not annoy anyone. And they go past this stop sign that even you, the viewer, didn't notice until you got that close-up shot. And it's a goofy stop sign. It has little lights on it, which I, I enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the film set comparison is really apt because this is kind of the aesthetic that we're going to get for the most part of the film. Like, this mm. is going to be a really messy... Um, we're transported to another world now. It, yeah, this, it's going to feel like a hoarder's paradise kind of film going forward, and that's why <laughs> the sort of artificial uh, look is is appropriate for yeah preparing us for what this film really is. You go from the realistic New York City to this bizarre, otherworldly film-like setting. Alex, did you get uh, did you get Hills Have Eyes vibes, or or were you thinking of a specific any other specific horror movie when this was happening? I kept waiting for them to stop at a gas station and ask for directions or something, and. <laughs> And then get, then we lose one of them, piss someone off. Yeah, like you think you're smarter than me. Yeah, I, it's they are gonna pull over for a picnic, but then the Brazilians just get like super impatient and they just start eating in the car. <laughs> uh, and Demi Moore is chowing down too. Yeah, but they get in a high speed chase with uh, who we come to find out the sheriff's deputy, uh, John Candy, Officer Dennis Valkenheiser. Pulls him over and <laughs> Chevy Chase and delivery that only he can give. Was I speeding? And, you know, after he's going like 100 <laughs> miles an hour. And, you know, it's uh, definitely taken on the elements of a horror movie here, though, because through the cop car, he's like controlling the roads and, um, you know, almost like a Truman Show type thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Setting good. up barricades. Which cop, know, uh, uh, which cop is scarier, Alex? Arlie Ermey and the Texas Chainsaw remake? Or John Candy in this one. I mean, Arlie Ermey's an intimidating son of a bitch. And, like, you know, he had already done, like, Full Metal Jacket and shit like that going into Texas Chainsaw. Here, I mean, John Candy's John Candy. Like I said, he was a polka king in the Midwest. He's lovable. Uh, into this. Yeah. And it's, so, like, and it's, yeah, it's offsetting, though, because he's playing it really straight. So you don't know how to read him because you naturally want to like him. And the film plays with that as we go along. But at first, you're having him just give the mean look to to Chevy Chase, and Chevy Chase is doing his thing. He tries to bribe him, also furthering the fact that Chevy Chase is this rich guy that thinks that the that consequences for his actions don't apply to him, and, well, we'll shortly find out that's that's not true for you, man. The film is really front-loading a lot of the, like, twists and tricks at this point, because um, when they come to the town, we hear that it's called Vulcanvania, um, we see, again, the film set looking aesthetic. It's very weird. You're expecting something dark to happen. This cop is chasing them, and he's got all these like powers gadgets. in terms of like gadgets and control. But then he's very pleasant and understanding when he pulls them over. He it makes it perfectly clear that he's not going to even mention the speeding. Okay, you're pull- you- we were expecting something a bit more in line with what we understand of Vulcanvania so far, but he seems... 
again, this kind of pullback to normalcy. And you have that uh, even challenged because the other policeman that's also in the scene, the woman, she's got like this big machine gun thing aimed at them throughout this entire <laughs> ordeal. So you are really thrown for a loop because you have the dissonance of this policewoman with a gun who's threatening them and John Candy being a mild-mannered, normal, uh, polite police officer who's giving them a chance. And then you've got Chevy Chase who doesn't give a shit. Spread them? Oh, come on. No, really. Spread them? Oh, come Yeah, that's nice. Thanks. The lower back, please. Thank you. Yeah, check the prostate. That's nice. He hits him with the follow me back here. We're going to go meet with the Justice of the Peace, which again, you know, if this dude was intelligent at all, he would be like, this isn't how this fucking works. Uh, you have to book me first. But anyway. <laughs> that goes back to the brilliant uh, mind behind the film. Yes. Yep. Well, there you, you go. You, you say that, but uh, well, there's some true life stories for Dan Aykroyd that says otherwise <laughs> to you. Touche. So Chris Thorne and the gang follow Officer Valkenheiser, uh, you know, where they're going to go. The courthouse is what they surmise. And it begins getting weirder and weirder. It's like in, um, you know, the GTA games when you just start exploring for too long and you just find yourself in like a junkyard or, you know, on that the appear somewhere where there's really nothing going on and the game developers never really thought you would go there. <laughs> there's like an That's arrow the that keeps pointing you to return to the main story. Like, hey, go yes. back to Atlantic City. <laughs> yeah, or alternatively, like, oh, I'm not up to the part where the plot takes me here yet. Yeah, so you yeah. see a scene that's, like, really detailed. You're like, why am I not having anything go on? <laughs> I had something like that happen to me in Medical Sub 5, and I was like, oh, shit, this is really creepy. Oh, I can't do anything here. Whoops. Mm. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Yeah, this movie meanders like Metal Gear Solid Five, so that's an apt comparison right there. <laughs> but they eventually get into what appears to be like this giant junkyard, and then you know it's kind of revealing itself more and more, and there's all these implements of destruction, but also this big house that they see, uh, this mansion that you know it looks like the fucking haunted mansion at Disney World. So they go in. John Candy sets the stage and calls in the Justice of the Peace to take his helm, and that is our director and writer. Dan Aykroyd, and we find out this is Judge Alvin J.P. Volkenheiser, a uh, 106-year-old who's the grandfather of Dennis and some of the other characters that we come to find in this film. And He's a gross-looking individual, not unlike some of the zombies you would see in uh, Dead Alive, or uh, Brain Dead as it's known, and immediately has like a shtick. Now, I, I do need a compliment. It doesn't scream this is Dan Aykroyd. Because Dan Aykroyd, you know, original SNL cast member, film-wise, you would have to say Ghostbusters is probably his most famous movie. But part of his thing was always different voices. He could do a whole... He was like Phil Hartman kind of in that way. He could do like a, a big range of characters and voices. So he didn't really have one specific shtick that he was really known for. It's not like Adam Sandler. That type of thing. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd shows up here and right away is this new character jp volkenheiser yeah. uh so there's a, it's a there's a lot happening in the atmosphere too because you get all the film tricks you don't see him straight away he's obscured by all of these massive ancient books that are all cobweb infested and gross and you just have this 
uneasy feeling and you go to your, and you say to yourself, at least I did, and I've seen this movie before, is this still that romantic comedy that we were in like five <laughs> minutes ago? What's happening? And then you get the glory shot where he gets up and yells and you see the face, you see the full makeup, the hands, his outfit is 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 key to his look as well. And you just go, oh my, oh my. Yeah. And even on a visual level, like you mentioned he was obscured by like the books on his desk. Like I mentioned before the Hoarder's Paradise here, like the mise-en-scene from this point on in the film is basically like eating up the entire screen and you've got this whole visual of it's eating up one of the major characters of the film that you're probably going to remember. So what is the main appeal of this film? Is it the place or is it the character? And when he comes out and you see what he really looks like, it's like, ooh, ooh, even with all this stuff, you know, the outside of the mansion, the inside of the mansion, the things we're going to see going forward – this guy is what we're going to remember. Yeah. It it changes the entire like trajectory and all the dimensions of the film cuz even like the unsettling things of the cop being able to control, you know, the moons and the tides and the surroundings, <laughs> it's it's it, we didn't see like a real monster until this point, so it's it's a matter of hmm, this is interesting. Chevy Chase doesn't help his cause either running his mouth off, but what the judge <laughs> determines is they're going to reconvene tomorrow, so they have to stay overnight. He has like a, a fucking Dr. Evil style setup where he can press a button and they fall into like this well of squeaky toys. <laughs> they obviously start panicking and like a ball uh, pit, right? Yeah. 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 They start panicking, but kind of, you know, trying to regain their bearings are eventually called to supper or, or dinner. I don't know if they call it supper in this, but <laughs> I think it sounds like they would in this little <laughs> just place. Are, are you kidding? They would call it something. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to go ahead and give away my Texas Chainsaw stance because that's <laughs> what they call it in that movie. But um, so they call them for supper. Demi Moore is absolutely disgusted that one of the dishes is ants on a log, and this woman does not understand how to hold a piece of celery. <laughs> I think that is like one of the most establishing shots of a character in this entire film. Can we? Can we? Can we not miss before we go to this? Because this is actually very important to the supper scene. Because the supper scene's excellent, and I don't know if you have this in your notes, but meanwhile, a Baldwin is driving in a car. As him and okay, his gangster friends. Was it friends. a Baldwin? I thought he looked like somebody I yes, should know. Yes, Dan, Daniel Baldwin. And thank you for calling it back to it, because, yeah, I skipped over the line where I I said, you know, they're held overnight, but we see that others that are, you know, put on trial in this little township here are not so fortunate because, yes, it is a Baldwin. I was the lighting. It was kind of like a reveal shot. Like, I was like, is that Steven? (laughs) Is that Billy? Who is that? But no, it's Daniel Baldwin, Mm -hmm. who he's a Baldwin because he's got coke, his hair slicked back and he's got a gun. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, was he the one? Was he the one in Biodome? I, I can't remember. No, that's but Steven. Steven is the one. That's Biodome. Yeah, Biodome Steven. All right. Star but- of uh, Biodome and Fred Claus, Stephen Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> so they are arrested with drugs, you know, DUI. They have firearms on them. And so we see that Chevy and the gang were a bit luckier because the judge sentences them to death. And, you know, they get on the conveyor belt that whisks them into uh, Ryan, I'm sure you know what it's called. What's the machine that Mr. they get thrown Bone, into? Mr. Bone Stripper. How could you forget? It has a song that plays as it does this to them. It's a roller coaster that goes down as a song plays. Fire is shooting up in the air, and they get put on this giant conveyor belt, and they're just shot through this 
Rube Goldberg machine of clamps and spikes and spinning things. And, well, what happens is uh, they go through that and we see a cut to behind the bone stripper. And there's a big pile of bones and you see their bones. Stripped bones. Stripped bones. And you see their bones shoot out and hit a target and you hear the ding noise as it happens. Hey, hey, ho, ha, ho. <laughs> hula, 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 the bula, bula, bula. Look who's got the front seats of the Mexican hat dance now. Just like a bunch of spiders in a birthday cake. This came from the mind of that Aykroyd, writer slash director. I mean, that is, in my mind, I, I just didn't know that he had it in him. You know, when I think of uh. him, I think of something that's more lighthearted. Uh, uh. Not, not this really dark, twisted, really off-the-wall stuff. Like, I know he's quirky, you know, he's... but. Uh. <laughs> From the moment that he comes on screen, well, number one, the movie becomes the movie. <laughs> That's what we're going to have for the rest of, of our of our runtime here. But also, it's such a left turn. I think that this is that this is a crucial point. I think this is where the movie either loses you for good or the movie hooks you. You know, if you were like not so sure about the romantic comedy plot, you're like, okay, this seems like a, pretty familiar. Uh, then this would probably capture your attention. And then on the other hand, if you were just settling in for a nice romantic comedy, this might be mm-hmm. too much, and then you just tune out. Like I don't, if I don't really only, care. If only when Harry Met Sally had Mr. Bone Stripper in it, that would have been a, a stellar <laughs> film. And obviously, for like the four of us, you know, we're on board for this. This is exactly what we want. But evidently, you know, the thirteen percent on Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. I guess most people were along for the ride as it started like i honestly wonder if the people who you know gave it a low rating on rotten tomatoes if they would just write a review about everything before you know vulcanvania yeah would they say like this is this is peak stuff like yeah, this is knows? 100% and then yeah but you know that's controversial but mr bone stripper strips the flesh off the bones of some criminals and then we get into the supper because uh, a nice little piece of business is now we have some meat for the supper Yes. I mean, I can't get over to me more not understanding how to hold a stalk of celery, but, you know, there were we'll, ants, we'll move Alex. past that. <laughs> it, it was peanut butter and raisins. Have you never had ants on a log? It's a delicious treat. Uh, no. You hold it like a fucking Slim Jim. You, you fucking she probably thought they were real like, ants. <laughs> Alex immediately fucking foreign. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Gone tooting and starts shooting his guns in the air and throws his cowboy hat up. Yeah. That's right. Um, but like we get this awesome, uh, you know, invention or kind of just revelation of the hot dog where it's a fucking train that goes around the table that has the different <laughs> condiments on it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, uh, it's unsettling because the way Dan Aykroyd eats his boiled fucking, it's, it looks like Julio and I having the experience we do at the movie theater. It's one of those hot dogs that hasn't sold for four days and we have to heat up again <laughs> and it just, and this scene's insane, by the way. Like, it starts out like a normal dinner scene, but then Dan Aykroyd descends from the roof. Like, it just opens <laughs> up and he goes down. His leg jolts out all stiff and you hear him crack it back into place. He sits down. He smacks a thing on the table. It opens up. A little train comes out. This old gramophone music starts whirling around. He's got pineapple juice or whatever it is in this, like, old tin and he just stabs it with something for engineering for and, cars. And at some point, even though John Candy He's already sitting. John Candy descends from the stairs. <laughs> oh yes, I, I'm curious to hear what we have to say about other John Candy. But we, we double scene, dip. Eldona, Eldana. Yeah, Eldona. You can yeah. never have too much candy, guys. But yeah, this is probably the centerpiece of the movie because it incorporates all the characters and the set and the 
wacky kind of humor that you get where the humor now is becoming, oh, this is insanity. We're slowly descending into insanity where we become the Brazilianaires who are like, I've, I can't. This pickle being thrown at me is the last straw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no. that's a really good point because other than the cops later on and I'll just vaguely say the musicians, this is like every character in the film yeah. right here. So, so John Candy, I guess he had in his contract that he needed to play two characters and they told him, okay, who else do you want to play? Uh, he said, I want to play my character's mute cousin. Sister. That will have the hots for Chevy Chase. It is quite an entrance, and it really... Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I used to... I remember which movie was it that kind of got on my... Oh, you know what it was? It was uh, one of your favorites, Ryan. Uh, Paddington. The first Paddington. Because uh, there's a scene kind of later in the movie where... Um, what's the name of... Uh, is it... Hugh Bonneville, the, the main yeah, Hugh Bonneville, yeah, yeah, Hugh Bonneville. He dresses he, up as a cleaning lady, and then yeah, you got upset. and I remember thinking, you know, we're past the time when just where, where a scene would be funny just because you put a dress on a guy. You know, it's like we've moved so far past that that it's not like forget about like anything other than just like do you find this funny, right? Um, but I'm thinking maybe that was just a uh, uh, Hugh Bonneville not really being up to the challenge of making that funny because mm. from the moment that. John Candy comes in dressed as a woman. There's something just, I guess it's just that, I mean, he's playing over the top, but it's also like he's playing a character. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, this, this is a character that has motivations and has desires and everything. It's not uh, just, it's not just, can, it's not just John Candy with a wig and a dress. You know, he's actually yeah. playing a woman. And so that, I think that adds that extra level of like, okay, I find this, uh, you know, I understand why we did it. Uh, but yeah, this was really at this point starting to remind me of um, Texas Chainsaw Next Generation with McConaughey and Renee Zellweger, just the way the house becomes like a maze and how everything just keeps getting stranger and stranger and the family just seems to keep growing and having different aspects and um, wrinkles to it. Uh, but the to me, uh, excuse me, Diane and Chris get shown to their room. Uh, the romance, the sparks are flying already. Uh, this, of course, leads to Diane saying, you're nothing but trouble. And that's when Chevy Chase looked at the screen or looked at the camera and winked at us. Said, ah. <laughs> oh, at some point too, the Brazilianers jump out the window because they've had enough. I think the dinner, scene, sorry, yeah. the supper scene freaked them out, so they ran away. So, and I, 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 I cheer at this. They have just their own <laughs> little plot that runs for two scenes. They do the thing that in these movies you wish the the characters would do, which is just just leave, and yep. they do. And you're waiting. Oh, they're going to get killed, right? They're going to get nope. murdered in some trap. No, they successfully just just leave. I think it's like, I'm, that- I'm laughing at it because it's a subversion not, of the expectation. Not only do they leave, but they actually steal something from the film's narrative. Yes, yes, a John Candy with them. <laughs> well, that too, but I'm no. I was actually talking more on like a meta level. Remember how we established this as being a romance film, and yes. you know the romance stops at the end. The last scene we see of them, we see the conclusion of a romantic arc. There you are. I liked it because it it kind of showed that uh, that Aykroyd knew his limitations, and he was like, "There's only so many balls I can juggle." And I already introduced myself, you know, <laughs> JP, and and I introduced uh, John Candy and Drag, and something had to go. So I understand that you know the decision of saying, "Okay, now we gotta 
we got streamlined a little bit. You can't have all the craziness that goes on in the rest of the movie while also dragging the Brazilians screaming. I mean, I think that those characters, as entertaining and over the top as they could be, you know, they reached the... They weren't going to offer anything else to the narrative. Uh, in, no. in fact, they maybe would have taken attention from, you know, the really cool stuff that we want to see. So uh, he writes them out. He writes original John Candy out. And that's fine. I mean, do we miss them when they're gone? Like, initially, I guess, in the sense that you're right, we're conditioned to expect them to come back, to get in trouble, to not make it, you know? But uh, but at the same time, I was so entertained by everything else that replaced them that it wasn't until we got to the end where I was like, oh, yeah, that's right, those guys. Those Their, their, their role in the movie is to react extremely to the most minute things. So it's, it's hilarious that him getting a pickle thrown at him is when he's like, that's it, I've had enough, and they jump out the window. Because if you had those people in the rest of the film... You can only take them so far while Demi Moore and Chevy Chase are far more dialed back. You can mm-hmm. have them dial it up as we get the junkyard or this door is full of baby dolls or this attic is full of driving licenses of people. And so you need to remove these characters or find something different with them. And Dan, Dan Aykroyd, you know, he was it's management of your script. Okay, we need to escalate things, but these characters can't escalate anymore. Remove them. But instead of just killing them, wouldn't it be kind of funny if if them just running away actually worked? And also, again, on a meta level, you know, you want these twins. It's okay. There are more twins in the film. There you are. What is that smell? It smells like Sao Paulo. (gasps) Toxic. So the Brazilianaires managed to escape. They wade through the moat of poo and are able to get to the other side and they think you know freedom reigns that type of thing they run into uh officer dennis john candy standing there though isn't he like smoking a cigarette with his gun yeah kind of like chilling yeah and they entice him you know we're rich we could take you away from all this and he thinks about it and he's like what am i going to do with money you know, I've been doing this since I was eight, but then they say, you know, we'll take you with us on vacation. And he's like, well, I could sure use a vacation. So <laughs> yeah, he kind of gives them like the nod that you give the dog to let him know it's okay to come outside. It's like, come on, <laughs> let's get, get out of here. And, <laughs> it, so, it also follows through on a, I guess, because in all the madness, we didn't really focus on it too much. But when the trial was happening for our four leads, there was a sort of back and forth between JP and John Candy, where John Candy was clearly on a different thought path. He's moral. Yeah. And right. JP basically says, like, well, look, when you're doing this job, you can do it your way, but now we're doing it my way. Yes, you can inherit it once I'm gone, which also will be a, a plot point for JP. The inheritance of all, all of this will be very important going forward. But that's what's cool, too, because I, I thought, and I'm sure Alex at least must have thought, felt the same way since he hadn't seen this before. I thought they were setting up John Candy, this version of John Candy, <laughs> uh, to save the day at the end. Right, he's gonna be the bad guy, or the you know, the uh, the guy that's with the bad guys, but he's indecisive, and then in the in the final act, the third he's, act, he's gonna turn. He's, he's Garrett Dillahunt in Twelve Years a Slave. Yes. <laughs> uh, but no, instead the movie writes him out. You, you, I kept waiting for him to come back, you know, with the cavalry, but but it never happened, and it was well, just the one of those things. Do come with, if that helps you any. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it was. It's just constant uh define of expectations throughout the movie and it's one of those things that really you don't appreciate until the movie's over you know because when it's happening it's when you're watching the movie you're you're still caught up on those expectations you don't realize that they've been thwarted until they haven't materialized so it's it's a lot more clever uh once you're looking back at it 
So that kind of writes off our Brazilian errors, and the payoff is wonderful, but we'll get to that here momentarily. As I mentioned, the house is a maze. Demi and Chevy, uh, Diane and Chris continue to wander through the home. They reach this point in it that's almost like the fucking Goonies, where it's this slide that they end up going down. And, you know, we'll get into my real feelings about this movie in the second half, but one thing I can tell you for sure is that what this movie had was me thinking of this uh, versus, like, modern movies and why it used to be better someone built a slide mm-hmm. and then they built a set around the slide and then people went down that slide numerous times yeah. be it the actors the stunt doubles or the cameramen to catch like the first person view of it and just that sequence alone is like a huge example of where Julio and I differ on things because I was just <laughs> thinking like I love this it's and real. this makes me like yeah it makes me like pine for the days of this and Julio's just probably like Oh, where's Thor? <laughs> and, and and the thing and the thing too is because it's real, it adds to your level of amusement and absurdity of oh my god, they really did get a room full of bats. Those are real bats, and they just got a big prop of bat poo that's just like yay high or whatever. And then yeah, it's a real slide, and oh look, they've got bone props and 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 Dan Aykroyd's makeup. You know, oh, there's a lot to say about that makeup, but it's that thing of it's like it's tangible, it's real, and. You know that they're really interacting with a with a set where the wall is chasing them, you know, and they have to open up all these Scooby Doo type doors where they open a room and it's like nothing but baby dolls crying, or they open another one where it's like it's just a grave and it's like you know that they got the prop people to make these for something that will appear for half a second, and the fact that the effort is put in is greatly appreciated. This makes a little bit of a fun game because when you read in the trivia that obviously this is you know a Dan Aykroyd product, um, it also said that like the the film crew were coming up with all these ideas and Dan Aykroyd was accepting all of them. So it's like, oh, which one was an Aykroyd one? Which one was mm. a other person one? He's a yeah. generous filmmaker. Uh, I, I, I appreciate it, Alex. I mean, it's no MCU, but that's okay because this was back in you know early '90s. You can't expect it to measure up to the MCU. I really liked that. Uh, that was clearly uh, the me more landing. At the end of the slide, she didn't get yeah. a, a body double and then I cut to a close up of her looking up. No, that was her landing face first and then getting up in one single shot. Uh, <laughs> Aykroyd asked her, You want to be a star, don't you? <laughs> she had yet to win her Oscar when she was filming this. So he's like, You do whatever we tell you in the physical <laughs> film. So you do it. She had no sway then. So through all this, Chris kind of finds the psycho hole in the wall where he's looking at the judge and we come to find out the judge is like almost like a zombie <laughs> takes his wig off and his head's like almost Cro-Magnon style like deformed something you see in like a cartoon on Cartoon Network back in anywhere from like 96 to 98 that time period and then he takes his nose off and just kind of hangs it on a hook like you would your hat <laughs> so we realize at this point we're not just dealing with a weird old man we're dealing with something entirely different I, like, I had a moment. I, don't think- I had a moment where I thought that we were heading towards a big reveal that uh, it was just a normal guy. That it was he was going to peel off all the makeup and that it was just going to be Dan uh, Aykroyd. Uh, oh, okay. But <laughs> I mean, it didn't happen. Said, and I wasn't disappointed. I was just like, when, okay. When when you said they were going to reveal it's just a normal guy, I was like, well, yeah, you're right, Julia. They do. They give you explanations for why he's deformed throughout the movie. But <laughs> and then they reveal that if you take away all the rubbish, it's just a normal house. Yeah, it's just a normal house. So from there. Demi, Diane. She's in the junkyard. She's in the junkyard. In her attempt to flee. We get the twins. Comes across, yeah, these two giant babies. <laughs> uh, 
What are their names? <laughs> Little Devil and Bobo. Yes. To quote Ryan from many years ago, they look like Margin Boo. <laughs> yeah, they look like Margin Boo from Dragon Ball. Yeah. Yeah, it's Bobo and Little Devil. One of them is Dan Aykroyd again. And uh, did you guys notice? I I had read that he was uh, that he also played a second role. So that's why I think I was I was kind of prepped to recognize him. If I hadn't known, then I probably wouldn't have recognized him. So she gets captured here and basically handed over to the the twins. And you know, that's what her side story is for the pretty much the remainder of the movie. So Alex, is that also a practical effect uh, John Candy lifting her lifting Demi Moore over his head? Oh, in the military press? I, I don't know. I mean, he's holding her up there. He's posting pretty well. That's, you know, who was it? Billy Gunn was really good at, like, the military press and holding guys up there. He could do it with one arm, too, depending on who he was working with. So, I, I don't know. Maybe Candy went and trained with Afa, the guy who trained uh, Mickey Rourke for The Wrestler, and showed him how to do a military press. Who knows? And Demi is wriggling there. She's not even <laughs> taking it yeah. quietly. She's little, I so mean, you can hold her up in the air easy enough. And he, he, John yeah, Candy's a big dude. Tiny. At, at some point in amongst all of the chaos, they did have a very important scene where our two main characters find a treasure trove of information that gives us why the villains are doing what they do. They find all of these licenses. They find what happened, what happened to Jimmy Hoffa and all of these criminals. And they find evidence that this family takes in bad people and bankers and 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 kills them and they collect it there's a there's a serial killing aspect to it so there's even more of a pressure for them to get out because they both know that they're bad people that will most likely face the wrath of this family you know i think they've been doing this around here since the 1890s and i don't see any reason why they're going to stop at us i mean look at this they're all criminals and creeps bankers all right, it's time to, you know, we've had some fun <laughs> and discussing, you know, what's what's gone on here. Um, I, I, I can be honest in saying, like, this movie was kind of, I was like, what is going on? And then that what is going on went to an entirely new level when the digital underground show up. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally yell at my TV, is that fucking Tupac? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Alex, not only is it Tupac, it's it's his first ever film role. Ooh. Oh, dude, he was, young, I mean, young, all things being relative. He died five years later after this. He was killed. He didn't die. But yeah, uh, so like he's still kind of young and he's not bald. He doesn't have like the, you know, the kind of iconic Tupac image yet, but he's got the Yankees jersey on. And I was just like, it was one of those that. I let the movie keep going because I thought <laughs> like that couldn't be, and then they showed him again, and I was like, "That's Tupac." But then I forgot he was—he kind of got one of his uh, first big breaks in the digital underground. Yeah, it, you know they have Shock G and um, who's it? Uh, Chopmaster J. Yeah, Julio. D- Julio, you know who Tupac is, don't you? I know who Tupac is. I didn't know what he looked like, and I didn't know who the digital underground... I thought that it was a band that they created for the movie. Because why not? I mean, Dan Aykroyd is coming up with everything. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd wanted specifically the digital underground because he wanted a, a up-and-coming band in the film and something that was 
a piece of music that he personally liked. In fact, the, he's in a music video of Digital Underground that also incorporates footage from Nothing But Trouble. So he had a really great bond with them, and he, yeah, he wanted to give them a shot in his movie because he thought their music was really good, which, again, do you expect to hear the words Dan Aykroyd is a Digital Underground fan? No, no I didn't, but here we are, and it's in Nothing But Trouble. If you don't know anything about this movie, really, nothing can prepare you for watching this and then Tupac shows up. It's just kind of... <laughs> and and he sticks around not, for a while. That's the thing. He gets a full sequence. Yeah, because it's not Tupac when he was Tupac. It's just he's he's like basically an extra in a yeah. fucking horror comedy directed by Dan Aykroyd. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> because, well, what's his name? Shockmaster G. He's the most important one, uh, if I'm not mistaken. He's the one with the fake nose and the glasses. Mm-hmm. He's the most important member of the digital underground in this film. And he gets a lot of jokes. And I know... I don't think most people walk in expecting a full musical number by the Digital Underground in their nothing but troubled Dan Aykroyd comedy, but hey, Dan Aykroyd was always on the pulse when it came to music. I mean, think about the Ghostbusters movies. Hmm? To be fair, at this point in the movie, like we've come so far, I can say that I was not surprised when we just went into a full-blown musical number. I I was like, (laughs) of course, this is... Well, it's also the the melding of... You know the the rap group is performing, and the, then you know fucking Dan Aykroyd starts playing the piano. It's like the Lollapalooza episode of The Simpsons where Cypress Hill starts playing with like the the orchestra. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, From the film narrative perspective, this scene also serves to establish a rule of threes. It's it's ah. the third trial that we see, and it plays out. Every single trial is played out differently. Like our main characters, you know, neutral. It's going to continue later. Second characters, the Baldwin guy. Uh, you know, sentenced to death. And then with this third one, you do something different. You get the musical number. Dan Aykroyd plays the piano, makes a funny face. Yeah. And he actually gives a justification for why he's letting them go. And it gives you uh, a psychology, a psychopathy to this family's mentality. It's not just they're crazy and it's because it's a comedy. We don't have to put any, any in any effort because they're wacky. Here, he gives you a really clearly defined reason. They bring back he to the community. They contribute to the world. And their crime was one where they didn't really do anything bad. They just, what were they, speeding or something and bring them in? You guys bring back to the community. And in fact, could you do me a favor? Because we've also got another plot line happening that I need you to help me with. You know, heading into that plot line, actually. Because, uh, yeah, the, the plot line is that <laughs> uh, Chevy Chase finds himself engaged to to John Candy. To... Uh, What's the name of her of his character? Eldona. He finds yeah, himself engaged to Eldona. Because he's basically like, he bumps into her, so by the rules of the property or whatever he says, they <laughs> yes. they have to, like, he belongs to her. So she, she's got him chained up, and this eventually leads to, yeah, where you're going with the wedding, because that's the reason the Digital Underground hangs around, is because uh, fucking J- JP asks them to basically be the, the wedding band. Mm. So... <laughs> Here comes the bride. Here comes the groom, Julio. Yeah, it's it's an it's another um meet cute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is a, a running cute. Uh, I wanted to call out that the the reason that uh, that Chevy Chase runs into uh, John Candy to Aldana is that he's he's escaping a fight with Dan Aykroyd. Like they're getting into it. Like he Dan Aykroyd found him like sneaking around his room, and then. Dan Aykroyd pulls a sword, I think. And, yeah, from his uh, cane. From his cane. From his cane. Yeah, and Chevy Chase. They have like a pretty cool fight scene, which it, it, the best part is when Chevy Chase accidentally steps into uh, what do you call those the things? Bed like a, 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 the bed pan. The bed pan. He steps into a bed pan. 
and then uses it as a prop to defend himself from <laughs> from that accurate. I was in tears. I, I, I don't know why I, I found it so funny, but I guess because I thought that they were going to go for the easy joke, which was like, oh, haha, he stepped on, on a bedpan. It's gross. But then he actually did something cool with it. And so... It's probably my favorite like action sequence in the in the movie. Yeah, to uh, comedic titans going at it with props, uh, but yeah, then he he finds himself accidentally engaged, and then Tupac and his musicians play uh, Eldara's entrance. <laughs> she, she's she's really into it. I this is I've seen uh, more than my fair share of weddings on film. Uh, and sometimes I'm pretty indifferent because it feels like, you know, most of them feel the same, they, they follow the same pattern and you're just right. kind of like, okay, can we move on to the next bit of the story? But here there's just, there's just something about the fact that the John Candy character is so invested and we know that Chevy Chase has absolutely no interest and you have these great musicians in the background and you have the threat of Dan Aykroyd at the front. Like, this was actually a wedding that was keeping me interested as it was happening. Yeah, and uh, there's a threat to it underlying it the whole time and Dan Aykroyd is now friends with Chevy because Chevy's agreed to do this and you get that nice back and forth where yeah, he reveals, oh yeah, Eldona is a great mechanic so you'll never have car trouble and, and things of that. <laughs> and there's also like this little challenge going on uh, with the female John Candy character here because this character is a mute. They're not speaking. They which... got hit by a thunderclap when they were little is what Dan Aykroyd said. <laughs> but also yep. from, a, from an acting perspective, like, okay, uh, John Candy clearly isn't doing a female voice here. He's just making sounds. So what's he going to do when it comes to the I do? Like, how's he going to sell that? And physically, he was able to do that. Oh, yeah. It's all in the eyes. Chevy was scared. <laughs> he was scared of his mind. <laughs> the best acting from Chevy in the whole movie. <laughs> he was terrified. Judge, as far as her needs are concerned, I could never presume to be able to fill them. So it's time to spring out of here. You know, Chevy starts planning his escape. Meanwhile, like we said, uh, Diane's held hostage with uh, Bobo and Lil Debel. They're like <laughs> playing cards, and like we see that you know Stockholm syndrome set in because Diane's talking like them now. Like, oh, Bobo. Well, this is this oh. is this is again. She's playing them because throughout the movie, she's always trying to be buddy buddy to JP, and she's like, hey, why don't we do why why don't we do what you say? And now she's captive to these guys. She's trying to play in, and there's that moment where I think it's Little Devil was like, and if I win, I get Diane, because he's horny. <laughs> and and Diane does the Little Devil. Uh-uh, you can't do that. Like <laughs> She's playing it to save her life. I, I That's how I looked at it. Like I can see the Stockholm Syndrome, but I, I kept looking at her throughout the whole movie as a mover and shaker who's like, okay, I'm in a dangerous situation. If I pair up with the people who are going to hurt me, maybe they won't, because I'm a pretty lady, which... That, I mean, it helps she, her out. She's definitely the smartest of the bunch, so that, that would play out. Mm. But uh, Chris, it, you know, attempting to flee, they have Diane, and it becomes more insane because they have, like, a fucking PA system through it. It's, it's like Texas Chainsaw <laughs> 2. That's basically what's unraveling here. And um, he explains, you know, you come, I'll let her go. He's basically, you get to choose. We see the implement of destruction they're going to use, which is like three giant blades. They use like, like a bomb trap. Yeah, it's like six watermelons they use to show what it can do. And uh, we see, though, the coal, like the coal mine they're on top of is already starting to kind of fucking implode. Because at one point, JP's walking cane goes through the ground and it's 
like we see smoldering ash below it. So it's like, brother, you got to get moving. <laughs> but, but this is where they live so, because throughout all of this, we do find out that his family got screwed over in the past by bankers and they have nowhere else to go. They have nothing else to them other than this crumbling empire. So they're going to use whatever power they have to get back at the society that betrayed them. So he's not mo- he's not leaving even if it's going to explode until later in the movie when he has a motivation to go somewhere else. Yeah, we'll, 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 keep, we'll put a bookmark, <laughs> bookmark on that phrase, got to keep moving for yes. later on because something keeps moving when that comes back. Yeah. I really like, uh, speaking of, of Diane, of the Demi Moore character, though, that they, she has this moment where, yeah, they have her captive. And, yeah, you're right. Like, the entire movie, she's being smart. She's been trying to play everybody and play along and uh, being very uh, just sly about how she really feels. But in this climatic moment where they basically tell her they want her to use her influence over Chevy Chase to get him to give himself up. And uh, she goes up, and instead of asking for help, she yells at him and tells him to run away. And it's the first time in the movie that she's shown like her her true colors, I guess, you know, to, to these guys. Instead of continuing to uh, act like she is Dan Aykroyd's buddy, like she's friendly with everybody, she just instead completely rebels against her captors and just tells Chevy to, to run, which is a pretty selfless act on her end and also inspires Chevy Chase to be selfless. So I was not expecting the two main characters here to have an arc and yet they did you have to have an <laughs> like arc you, because even though this movie but sometimes you don't you know you're like oh we're just having fun it's just you know it's a funny movie where yes. all we want is for them to get away but actually no i want them to get away and be better people for it yes although this they movie are. is bizarre and strange and takes weird left turns it does follow a traditional movie three-act structure including characters changing motivations being explained it does do that it's just you uh thrown by the tonal choices as well as some of the characters we meet but honestly like you have to have these two have an arc or what's the point other than you kill them at the end because in horror movies like friday the 13th you just kill the characters because they need to die and that's the end of the story and move on and that has its own merits but this part two that acro takes manhattan oh man i would I mean, yeah, Freddy versus <laughs> JP. I would watch that. <laughs> so Diane and Chris successfully, or at this point, have successfully gotten to the the moat. And uh, it, it probably could be taken as xenophobic or anti-Brazil, but it does kind of pay off a good joke of like, Chris just very off the cuff says it smells like Sao Paulo because, you know, after the Brazilians earlier complained of the, you know, it's just like home, that type of thing. So they cross the the moat. They're able to get to the other side and a pretty cool sequence. They see an oncoming train. Uh, they're so delirious. They don't understand. It takes like a train, like a mile to s- safely stop. Cause they're like, stop. Uh, and they end up following it. They grab on, you know, like a runaway train, like the song they're able to get on there and, they're both dirty and grimy and we get like them settled in. Once we get to like a stopping point, we'll find the the police and, you know, report what happened. And then there we get like a, a big like movie kiss here. Like, and mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised at how well it's pulled off. Cause it's again, Chevy Chase and Demi Moore and the movie is kind of insane, but it really does feel like a big earned movie kiss, like a climactic kiss. I mean, they've kiss. gone through a lot. So it, it, that, that helps sell it. I think. Uh, Alex, as they were escaping in the train, and we see Bobo and Lil Devil uh, 
kind of waving <laughs> goodbye to Demi Moore and saying that they're going to miss her. Did you, uh, did you wish that one of them at least had been swinging a chainsaw around? Would have helped. You know, it's, uh, well, maybe not even because they're just kind of like adults about it. They're over it. Sally, of course, was like, uh, I'm crazy now. <laughs> I thought, I thought Julio was going to ask Alex, well, were you crying when they were waving goodbye? Definitely not. I, I didn't realize, I, you know, usually we'll use this as a negative criticism. I was like, they escaped. The movie's over. Uh, you know, but there's still another 10 minutes of movie. I was like, what are we doing now? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> what we did is, uh, I thought of the the beginning of uh, is it Jason goes to hell, Alex, when uh, they set up like a military operation to get Jason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I remember like watching that, beginning. and I was like, yeah. yeah, they blow him up with a bazooka or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. I remember watching that and thinking, this is what they should have done, you know, in the second movie. The moment that you realize that there's a, a major threat, you just throw the national guard at him, and so the response from the authorities when when. Uh, Chevy Chase and Demi Moore tells him what's going on at that Akron's house. Like I thought that that was a good response. I was like, yes, this is what I wanted to see. You know, everybody goes in, guns blazing, ready to to take over. And and of course, there's one final twist that is just mind blowing. Yeah, they wrangle in the police. Brian Doyle's there as well, and they explain the whole story. We get like they look like they just came from the gym. They have like their sweatsuits on with the towels draped over and yeah, the they explain what happens. The police give it to them because it says police on the back. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So they take them to the scene of the crime because they say, you know, we're going to need you to identify this this son of a gun. And so they get there and they go up to the front door and at first, JP's kind of playing it off like, why are you bothering an old man? <laughs> and then he says, you better turn around. There's a beehive and turn around and then we get this really great wide shot that goes to like a hard cut in on the police of like everyone's like hi judge and that's where we <laughs> learn that the whole damn town's in on it and you know it's a um, whole system talk about gaslighting man at this point chris <laughs> and diane don't even know it's real dude i, I i'll be honest if if the movie then accurate's a great filmmaker and this might have been just uh studio pressure but if after this really creepy wide shot of the police and everybody else in town just being happy, yeah, uh, if there you just cut to black, directed by Dan Aykroyd, like that, this movie would be perfect because it's such a brutal, dark, downbeat ending. But we get <laughs> it a, just, we it, get an even better ending, Julio, because you have to pay off the mine is blowing up, so it just blows up now. <laughs> I was, I was going to yeah, say, yeah, it's been... I, I just, it, decide, it burns. I actually quite like the imagery that this house that is the embodiment of justice and order burns down and descends into hell. I think that's a rather great final image, but that isn't the final image. We get something even better as the final image. But yeah, this whole scene with the, you know, the police coming in, guns blazing, it's being set up. You know, slowly you see them pull in, you see them aim the guns, and it's like, okay, there are so many different ways that this could go. There could be a very straightforward judge comes out and they arrest him, the end. Um, there could be a couple of twists playing here, or probably more expected for this film is like, oh man, JP's got something in mind to just completely swipe them away that we are not seeing coming. Yeah, this could be another turn in the story where it becomes like the true life of uh, the Foxcatcher incident where it becomes a, uh, they, they hold up in their house and stave away from the police and now it's like an assault on Precinct 13 type yeah, like, movie. Or, or like Red State or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Thank you, Bartek. So... I was about to say, Kevin Smith's Red State. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, there are just so many little things that, 
end up happening that it's like, oh, this is the start of the the, the the next idea where, you know, they knock on the door and JP comes out and he's being like, oh, old man. And it's like, oh, it's, it's going to be like a psychological trick. <laughs> and then you get that whole twist of like, oh, no, no, no. They all like the judge and their friends. And again, back to that bookmark, things got to keep rolling. You barely have any time to register what's happening because it just starts all coming down with the explosion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they literally, as they're pulling away, it shows like the house fucking imploding. It's pretty, pretty rad. Uh, but then they like kind of just go on with life like nothing happened. Uh, That's not, no, I mean, Chevy Chase has nightmares. Well, <laughs> I mean, they go back, like they go back home. Uh, a la Tommy Boy brings the car back just in the rough shape that it's in, but still like, you know, cleaning it to make <laughs> sure it looks good. Um, and yet, not that nothing's happened, but it's just an attempt to go back to normal life is more of the way I should have phrased it. But then the news coverage shows the the coal fire and the recovery. And then we see JP saying, you know, well, everything's gone, but I have my son-in-law now that... Uh, grandson. Uh, my grandson-in-law. Grand, grandson-in-law, that's right, that I can rely on. And then he turns to the camera and he's got the ID and he's waggling it like, I'll see you soon, banker. <laughs> and then... Like it's a fucking Tom and Jerry cartoon. We cut <laughs> to the wall that has an imprint or a, a fucking outline that's been broken out of Chevy Chase's body because it's implied that he's uh, so fast to run from the situation that he literally broke through the you, wall. You hear his feet going, the door slam. He goes, "No, you won't." <laughs> it really reminded me. It really reminded me of that Simpsons gag where Homer's brain is like, "I've had enough of this," and you hear it walk down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> that's it i'm out of here I drive off <laughs> so wait did we do we close with that with that gag with him breaking through the wall or do we close with the brazilians oh yes the brazilians were somewhere before this it's, it's such a complex okay, so film. That's it, the scene oh shit that. yeah i'm sorry i th- yeah i thought it closed with the brazilians i guess i put my notes backwards because that's my favorite fucking part is they cut to cut to the brazilians that you know finally got away to their their paradise and john candy's with them and it's now that he's their bodyguard, and also he's taken the the female as his lover. And uh, he, like, puts his hand on her back, and she grabs it and puts it on her ass, and then grabs his, and he kind of, like, cocks his head back. Like, oh, it's a, it's a tremendous payoff to that joke, because you think, you know, Lifetime of Horror Movies, you think that's the whole thing. He's going to sell them out, and they're going to die also, but... Uh, it's just a, a wonderful payoff to that story. Yeah, it's like if Leatherface actually decided, you know what, I do want to leave my household of crazy people and want to have a nice life in Brazil and become a rich person. I Fausto. <laughs> that was the most adventurous weekend of my entire life. When I think about what happened in Balkanbania, I would do it again. <laughs> Not me. I was like James Bond. Written and directed by Dan Aykroyd, and then uh, Ryan made allusion to it earlier. Cinematography by Dean uh, Cundy, who obviously... John Carpenter's very cinematographer. Yeah, ensconced in the the horror genre. And also, uh, Julio, who's a cinematographer on Psycho 2, so something that we just discussed two days ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yep. He did Jurassic so. Park, who framed Roger Rabbit, the entire Back to the, Back to the Future trilogy. Big deal. Big deal. There's a lot mm-hmm. of big deal people here. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes production people. Makeup person was the person who designed Freddy for Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, right on. So mm-hmm. Dan Aykroyd's makeup only took an hour to put on because by the time this film got made, those fr- uh, those Nightmare on Elm Street movies had to get quicker at putting it on. So there was already a method mm-hmm. for it. So there you are. And I know that, Alex, you're a fan of that kind of stuff, those horror movies. If you really look at it again, you can kind of tell that it is probably by the same person. Yeah. 
It's a good call. Um, are we ready to go to real talk? Because I am. I, I honestly don't know who likes this movie and who doesn't in real life. And I, I want to find out. Wow. 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 Wow.